0: So we've been talking, you know, this, this vision statement really only works when you keep it together, but for the sake of understanding, we break it down, just like we do in science or in, in the other thing, we're trying to understand the whole, we can break it down and look at the parts. But our understanding is, and we hope that you never forget that, it's the whole statement taken together, sort of held together by the tension that's created there. It's a the whole statement together that works. Uh, really well. But we are going to continue to take it apart. And that's also true of these three points, to, en- to engage with the spiritually hungry toward a life in Christ that's inspired, intelligent, and involved. That's the idea of heart, head, and hands, which is certainly not original with our church. We've just put different language to that. But the idea that when uh, a movement toward Jesus and our faith is inspired. There's a Holy Spirit heart component, intelligent, which we'll talk about today. with a head component and involved. We're activists, we're active, we're getting involved in touching bases and doing work. When all of those things come together in perfect tension uh, and then are added to this concept of engaging with the spiritually hungry while we're moving toward Jesus, that's when this thing works. But we want to take it apart so that we can understand it. And this morning to focus especially on this idea of a faith that's intelligent, which for some, uh, when you say the word church or faith and the word intelligent and put those together, for some, those are antithetical concepts. They're, that's an oxymoron. Isn't it true, and some people would think that, when you walk into a faith community, you, what's the old phrase, you trade your brain, you turn your brain in at the door, then you come in here and you feel stuff that isn't provable, and you're supposed to believe it, and you poor people, and then maybe when you leave the building, you can pick up your brain and put it back in gear. We're arguing that, no, actually the exact opposite is true. You, you don't come in to understand the Christian faith as it's been presented throughout history. And as we understand today, you don't come in without your brain actively engaged, without your critical, the critical nature that was created in us by God to be thinking about things, thinking about things, discerning things. No place for real faith without that brain. So I wanna be very, very clear about the point of this message so that I don't drift, you can help me stay on track This is the one thing I'm trying to accomplish this morning with this message in the next 20 minutes. The point of this message is to show that logic, reason, and intellectual rigor are and have always been an essential part of the Christian faith. They are and always have been. By the way, you'll notice if you're involved with uh, students at any level uh, anymore that in most institutions, Logic and reason, even in colleges, are no longer part of the curriculum. Huge mistake. Big mistake. I'm not going to be alive to feel the ultimate consequences of that, but we would be really wise to put art and music and logic and reason back in the curriculum because those are the things, well, that's my soapbox. So it's to show that and further to argue that to accept less than an intellectually honest approach to science, theology, and culture is, I'll put it so strongly as to say it's an affront to God and a disappointment to Jesus. So we serve a God, if I understand historical Christianity and faith Uh, properly. I understand it this way, that when we quit thinking, we quit challenging, and we start being afraid of learning new things, and every new idea is suspect, and it's potentially an enemy until it proves itself to be no longer an enemy, that is not the faith Jesus talked about. It's not the example he lived. It's an affront to God to think that way. And that's the point of this Message, You know, there's a, an Einstein quote that goes around, and we evangelicals love to use it to make the point I'm trying to make today. Actually, he said it. Science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. There's not really much question that Einstein said that. Science without religion is lame, or wrote it. Religion without science is blind. But there's quite a bit of question about what he meant by it. Because Einstein probably wasn't even a deist, so by religion, I mean, he probably wasn't even someone who believed in a a, a personal God at some level, by some definition. So you have to wonder what he really meant by religion when he said religion. Probably doesn't mean what we wish he meant by it, but it's a wonderful quote, isn't it? But let's assume for this morning that by religion, in that quote, Einstein actually meant what we wish he meant. And if that were the case, if that were the case, would the statement be true? Are the logic of the scientific world and the mysticism of the religious world servants of one another? Is, in other words, science without God lame? And is religion without logic, reason, thought, Blind? And more to today's points is point, is intellect without religion lame? Is religion without intellect blind? It's a critical question for us here today since our stated vision says there's something about an intelligent approach to theology, an intelligent approach to God, a reasonable, logical uh, room that we need to protect and maintain and even feed in our brains There's something to that that results in the kind of Christianity Jesus presented, and certainly what we believe. So, what I want to do in the next few minutes is just uh, rehearse what's probably already pretty obvious, but it's good to remind ourselves of things sometimes. And I want to show you just quickly how, give an idea at least, of how pervasive this concept is throughout Scripture, through different movements of scripture, the idea of trying to be a Christian and then trade in your brain first is a disappointment to Jesus, an affront to the God who created us. First of all, note that God the Father is pretty clear about the importance of thinking well. Some even argue that reason and logic, and I b- agree with them, are a part of the nature of God and that he expects reason and logic and intelligent approach to life and the things that we discover, see, and experience are part of what he gave to us when he created us in his image. So to try to, say, follow Jesus without, a, 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 in a positive sense, a critical piece of our minds actually being in play is to go a different way than what Jesus taught. Uh, This is all over the book of Job. You have God in the book of Job, Job talking to his friends who weren't very friendly sometimes. And Job says things like, listen, if I present my logical case to God, he'll hear me and he'll act. This idea of, you set it up in Job, it's carried on in Isaiah, which is where I really want to focus. But the idea of, that's, that's creating a picture of a courtroom and, And one attorney stands up or one person stands up and presents their case point by point by point by point. They say, if this is true and this is true and this is true, then or therefore this is true. Go ahead and argue against it. Then the next person comes up and says, aha, however... This is also true, and this is true, and this is true. You have this reasonable back and forth, and that's the picture being presented, being assumed when Job argues if I present my case to God, God will hear me. But Isaiah picks it up, and he says what many of us who are older will remember President Lyndon Johnson using over and over again in his speeches, because he liked to bring sides together, whatever your political feelings were about President Johnson's presidency. He did like to kind of get people to sit down together and figure stuff out. And you remember that famous phrase he would use, come? Picked it up from Isaiah? Come, let us what? Come, let us reason together. I can just I can't even read it in scripture without hearing it with a Texas drawl because I remember that as a kid. Isaiah 1:18. It's God who says to Israel, "Come now, let us reason together." And God is speaking here to give it the context so you know your sins are make you like scarlet you've been messing up left and right but come let's sit down and reason together. I'll tell you what, I'll stand up here and I'll argue my case logically. And then and then I'm going to sit down and I'm going to listen to you Israel Judah argue your case. The context is that God has been watching his people and they've been coming and doing all the things that we did today. They've been passing the plate. They've been involved in the sacrifices. They've been keeping all the religious laws and rules. But there's been nothing about the way they've been living that's been consistent with the heart of God. They haven't cared about the oppressed. They haven't made space in their homes for people who have no home. They haven't fed the hungry. They haven't rescued people who are taken captive. They're not living what they seem to be saying is important to them, and that frustrates God. And they're saying, yeah, but we're still religious, we're still cool, and God says, come, let us reason together. Let's, you present your argument, I'll present my argument, and let's see what stands up, because this is not an intelligent approach to faith what you're doing. To say one thing and live another thing, you would lose in court. God the Father Is all about intelligent faith. So much so that he says, let's sit down and give intelligent arguments for each of us, for each of the way we're living, and then we'll see which one stands up and makes sense. He says, in effect, sit down with me and tell me why you think your dualistic behavior is reasonable. Argue your case, and then I'll argue my case. God the Father speaking on the importance of clear thinking when it's attached to faith. He actually is calling us and calling Israel, Judah out here, for a test of the logic to discern the reasonableness of his people's faith. This isn't God asking Judah to quit using their brains. This is God insisting that Judah does use their brains and employ reason and logic to evaluate their lives And their faith, intelligence, the ability to think well is important to God, so important that he expects it of his people, expects us to employ good reason in our engagements with him. But it's not simply God the Father, you would expect that if this is so important, that would be represented in the life of Jesus as well. And so we have God the Father on the importance of thinking well, but we also have Jesus on the importance of thinking well. Now I'm just giving you, I'm plucking out examples, but if you go back and do further study, you're gonna see this all over the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament and the life of Jesus too. Here's one example, I love this example, of Jesus on the importance of thinking well. The idea that God is seeking people who will worship him Emotionally and thoughtfully, energetically, and intelligently. Remember Jesus in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well? Woman, J- Jesus encounters her, and he asks for, he's going to get a drink, and she, he doesn't have a, anything to scoop it with, and so she says, how are you, what are you doing here? And <laughs> that goes on to a conversation about where we should worship. Oh, wow, we worship here, you worship here, which one is right? Jesus said, well, let me me reason with you on this. Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain, which she had asked about, or in Jerusalem, because she had said, which one is right? What's the right place to worship? You Samaritans, which is what she was, worship what you do not really understand, do not know. You haven't reasoned well. We worship what we do know, for salvation is to the Jews. Yet, and this is the important part, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers, which is what those who follow Christ long to be, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In other words, I would say with heart and intelligence, sort of romantically and mindfully, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And I'm arguing that that's Jesus giving reference to this idea that... Man, we worship emotionally. We worship romantically. There's a mysticism in our worship. It feels we can't always explain it. There's something emotional that's beautiful and wonderful. And actually, if I come into a worship service and it's completely cerebral, I feel empty. I don't. It's good, but thought is good, but I'm missing something. There's something like more like being in love than than like taking a math exam about worship. What? what Jesus is saying is, that's good. But there's also the math exam part. There's also your mind engaged theologically, and your mind thinking about what was just taught, and your mind remembering who it is that has rescued you, and your mind calculating the history of his involvement in your life, when we're really worshipping and the kind of worshipers, I think Jesus is saying at least this, when we're the kind of worshippers that God is in heaven seeking, looking for, and wonderfully surprised when he finally finds, that's a worshipper that has figured out the marriage of those two concepts. I'm worshipping with my spirit, which can't necessarily all be, always be calculated and proven, and I'm worshipping worshiping with my mind. I'm thinking carefully. This is not an ignorant exclusively emotional worship experience. Does that make sense? The importance of intelligent Christianity to God the Father, the importance of intelligent, logical, reasonable theology and Christianity to God the Son, Jesus Christ. And I also love the example of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul which is my third and final point, was one of the smartest guys of his time. Really, really well-rounded education. Paul was also an advocate for thinking well. How well-educated was the Apostle Paul? Let me run through a little bit of this. I'm just going to read this research that I did because I don't want to miss anything. He was a Benjamite in lineage and Hebrew ancestry parents were Pharisees. So he was a fervent, they were fervent Jewish nationalists who adhered strictly to the law of Moses and then sought to protect their children from what they would say was the contamination of the Gentile world. Paul could speak. He, I'm sure he had blue eyes. Paul could speak. Aren't those some eyes? I mean, if that guy looked at me and said, you will be home by midnight, 1201 and you're late. I'd be home at 1159, guaranteed. <laughs> Paul could speak Greek, Aramaic, Hebrew, and probably Latin uh, at some significant level. Growing up in Tarsus, Paul would have been privy to primary grammar and rhetorical school uh, before going to Jerusalem to receive rabbinical training. So he had significant training before his parents sent him off to Jerusalem to get more advanced training. And at age 13, he was sent. Uh, to Palestine to learn from one of the great thinkers of his time, Gamaliel. And there he mastered Jewish history, the Psalms, and the works of the prophets at very least. And then his education continued after that for the next five or six years, trained in what we call hermeneutics, the art and science of interpretation. How rigorous is this training? And then trained about how to apply the Hebrew scriptures significant education. And then he went on to become a lawyer, most think, probably with an eye on becoming a member of the Sanhedrin, so sort of like the Supreme Court of his time. That's how sharp this guy was. In addition to that, he was also educated pretty severely in the liberal liberal arts, as well as classic literature. So not just the Jewish gig, but he got education even more so from around Uh, In his culture, his training was both secular and religious. And it's pretty clear that at least by the time he writes and speaks in the New Testament, he's well-informed and very aware of pagan works. So, oh my, he even read non-Christian, non-religious poets. Probably much to his parents' uh, dismay. So he was able to contend intellectually with just about every segment and culture of his time. And when Paul journeyed to Athens, he debated philosophers there. Uh, Paul there and other places actually all through, read the book of Acts, especially Acts, uh, the middle chapters of Acts, you see Paul going, and his habit is this, he'll go into the synagogue and he'll reason with people. He'll go to the marketplace, not a religious context, sit down and reason with people. To the home of logic, he goes and reasons and is logical with people about his faith. So well-educated was Paul. And then after he became a Christian, after persecuting Christians... It said that he invests invested up to 13. This is a little bit foggy about the history of Paul, but he goes uh, at least for three years away some out to the desert and just digs into the Christian faith, no doubt. He's looking at the Hebrew scriptures with which he was so familiar and already so widely and wildly educated and now approaching them based on what he just experienced, again using his emotion and his mind and saying, how in the world can this make sense? Who is this Jesus? And he's rigorous. Some argue that The scriptures mean to imply when they talk about this that Paul didn't even have a teacher for those three years except for Jesus directly. And it's interesting, the apostles of Jesus follow him three years. Now here's Paul's three years, and that's with Jesus, and that's why he's an apostle. So you have this concept of Jesus actually training Paul. Uh, But even if he had uh, a human educator, look at the point, look at how much he invested in his education and his intellect and then you see that in Scripture, where Paul talks about uh, intelligent praying. Remember, my point is to say, look, the brain matters. You t- the brain is matter, and the brain matters. You try to be a Christian the way Jesus presented a Christian without giving serious attention to your intellectual abilities, logic, and reason, and argument then that's, I don't know what that is, but that's not the Christianity Jesus presented or the faith God intended. Our movement toward Jesus must be inspired, intelligent, and involved. And you have Paul arguing that he's talking about intelligent praying. Listen to this. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue, this is from 1 Corinthians 14, talking about speaking in tongues. That's my, not my point, it's just an illustration. Uh, should pray that they may interpret what, what is said. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. But, if my, mi- but my mind is unfruitful. And Paul's saying, not good. No nope, bueno. <laughs> so what shall I do? I will pray with both. I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my understanding or my mind or my, my literally my knowing. And then he goes on to say, I will sing with my spirit there will be an emotional, mystical experience for me, but I'm not checking my mind out, my brain out. I'll also pray with my, I'll sing with my knowing. And then he goes on to say, here's one of the reasons why that's so important. You've got intelligent praying. He makes the same argument about intelligent preaching. He even argues that, man, when you come and prophesy, when you come and preach, the preachers are subject to the preachers. The prophets are subject to the prophets. <laughs> so that's a challenge for me as a preacher, if preaching and prophecy at some level are uh, equal, to be thoughtful about what I preach and logical, and I can support my argument, but those among you who are also hearing what are saying, you're to be thinking critically. Not just whatever this guru says, that that must be God's will for me. No, never, ever. God forbid and God help us. We come together, and if what I present can't be reasonably supported and argued, it should be rejected or at least challenged. That's how important intellectual rigor was to Paul. He even, in Acts 17, talks about how he used intelligent logic, reason, argument in the public forum, intelligent evangelism. That's even a tool for Paul to persuade people to come. To Chris. Oh my gosh, I've got to get out of here. <laughs> okay, those three. Let me finish with this. So what are some of the marks of an intellectually rigorous faith? If, if this is the direction I'm going, inspired, intelligent, and evolved, what are some things I might notice in my life? May I just move through these very quickly? These are just some art-isms, some of my observations. <laughs> We've, we've stopped looking at scripture now and just tried to apply it. It's, this is something I use, the willingness to be persuaded by a better argument. You'll always be open to and willing to be persuaded by a better argument if your faith is practicing, is intelligent. I'm not threatened by a better argument. Intellectual honesty, you ready for this? Intellectual honesty means intellectual receptivity. You're not compromising scripture by having a mind that's receptive to a better argument. Theologically, politically, historically, scientifically, whatever it might be. Second observation. So the willingness to be persuaded by a better argument. The ability to understand and respect a competing perspective. This is something evangelicals have not done well. The ability to understand and respect a competing perspective, a different way of seeing something. And then this is important. And having understood and respected it, then to be, to be able to respond without pers- being perceived as a complete and ignorant, arrogant rectum. <laughs> but, as my British friends would say, bum. <laughs> Are you ready? Cover your kids' ears. I mean, you, you, you can disagree and see it differently and have a discussion about it without coming off like a complete ass. And some of us live and have seen our brothers and sisters living as though one of the Ten Commandments was argue your point in such a way that everybody thinks you're a complete ass. I remember and remind you of that text we so often. Love to quote from Peter. In your hearts, reveal Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And we say amen to that. But the church often stops reading right there because the very next phrase says, I mean, there's not even a gap between those two. The very next phrase says, but do this with gentleness and respect. Here's something that is true of us, and we are people who are intelligent in our faith. We're convinced that disagreement does not require disenfranchisement. Strong disagreement, yet the Holy Spirit teaches us how to be kind and loving and connectional, even in our disagreement. Okay? And then finally this, a tendency to get excited about new scientific discoveries instead of feeling threatened by them. Truth is never at risk, never. It doesn't need us to punch somebody to defend it. In other words, it, be the kind of person who doesn't tend to spend more time, be the kind of person who tends to spend more time as somebody else has says, had said, uh, with the unanswerable questions than you spend listing the unquestionable answers. Does does that make sense? A tendency to get excited about new discoveries. You tend to spend more time pondering the unanswerable questions with peace and joy and excitement than you do listing the unquestionable answers. Our understanding of the Bible is not put at risk by new discoveries. Our understanding of the Bible is illumined by new discoveries. We are completely free to enjoy knowing. Well, let me finish. I'm... Four minutes over already. Finish with this quote from Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer and thinker. He said, it it was a saying among the ancients, Watts said, veritas in puteo, truth lives in the well. And to carry on this metaphor, he says, we may very justly say that logic does, as it were, Supply us with the steps whereby we may, be, we may go down to reach the water. The power of reasoning was given to us by our maker, he says, for this very end, to pursue truth. So of course, our journey toward Christ must be an intelligent one, a reasonable thinking one. For faith that forgets, or refuses to think is not the one modeled after the God it claims to follow. Get that? That's enough.